Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 27, Joshua chapter 24, the end of the book of Joshua. We're going to finish up the book of Joshua today. But before we get there, we're going to look at a few more of these inspiring, foundational, and pretty heavy-duty God principles that comprise the last chapter of this book. And I suspect we could easily spend several more weeks in this one lone chapter. As I told you before, that some scholars have made a goodly portion of their careers studying reporting on only on Joshua chapter 24. We were examining the 15th to 20th verses of this 24th and final chapter when we ended last time. And this was the matter whereby Joshua asked the people which God they intended to serve. And when they said that they would serve Jehovah, Joshua thought about their answer and said essentially, sorry, but you can't serve God. Let's reread a few verses to get our bearings and find out, if we can, why Joshua would provide such a surprising and negative response. We're going to read just five verses from um, chapter 24, 15 through 20. If it seems bad to you to serve Adonai, then choose today whom you are going to serve. Will it be the gods your ancestors served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living? As for me and my household, we're going to serve Adonai. The people answered, Far be it from us that we would abandon Adonai to serve other gods because it is Adonai our God who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from, the land of, from a life of slavery and did those great signs before our eyes and preserved us all along the way as we traveled and among the peoples we passed through. And it was Adonai who drove them out ahead of us, all the peoples, the Amorites living in the land. Therefore, we too will serve Adonai, for he is our God. Yahshua said to the people, You can't serve Adonai, because he's a holy God, a jealous God, and he will not forgive your crimes and sins. If you abandon Adonai and serve foreign gods, he will turn doing you harm, destroying you after he has done you good. Now, as we worked our way through this difficult but enlightening passage, we discovered that an ironic problem of cosmic proportions was put before Israel for their consideration. And that when read casually, it almost sounds like crazy-making words because it also sounds like an absolute divine insistence for the impossible to happen. And simply stated, the problem is this. God demands that those who call themselves by His name, those who say that they are part of His people, serve Him with fullest devotion and perfection. But since no man is even capable of such devotion or perfection, something that Jehovah will understands. 
than what the Lord demands of Israel they can't do. So Joshua tells Israel in verse 19, you cannot serve Jehovah. I mean, do you see this? Do you see the nature of the problem? Okay. God says, I want you to do what you cannot do. And if you don't, then you're going to suffer curses and destruction. I mean, what are we to think about such a thing? What are we to think of such a God that would demand the contradictory? It's no wonder that we find Israel's response almost kindergartenish in nature, really rather hollow. This was because they couldn't comprehend the depth of the question the Lord through Joshua was asking of them. The level of devotion and service that God demands from his own is total and without flaw. This is because he is holy and is himself perfect. Therefore, he can accept no less from his subjects or it would be defilement towards him. You see, it was rather easy for Israel to serve those false gods that had infiltrated their camp. Make a little statue out of wood or stone, drip some oil on them, bow towards them, pray to them, lay some fine food before them, and these non-gods seemed perfectly happy. I mean, which of these idols was going to tell you that you weren't worshipping them properly? It was somewhat different, though, as concerned dealing with the Almighty God who created all things. Jehovah. The very first man ever created failed in this devotion to his creator. Abraham couldn't manage it. Moses couldn't achieve the level of perfection of service to God. Therefore, Jehovah uh, punished him by not allowing him to enter the promised land. If Adam, Abraham, and Moses couldn't serve the Lord properly, how could a common Hebrew farmer or herdsman expect to do such a thing? Answer? Joshua says you can't. On the other hand, God expects it of you. And you should expect it of yourself. In case it hasn't struck you, it is this same absurd sounding proposition that's the reason that Yeshua, our Messiah, was necessary. And there is no way that he could have been only a mere man. Because no mere man was even remotely capable of perfect service. To the Creator. As a result of sin, all men are doomed to this failure. And in a sense, so are all believers. Even more aggravating is that as long as the pagans, those who have never known God, leave Israel alone, God says He'll leave them alone. But Israel catches no such break from the Lord 
In fact, another cosmic irony is that the people who God separates out and elects as his chosen people are going to be more scrutinized and expected to achieve a higher standard than those who he hasn't selected out. Pagans who follow other gods will not necessarily have evil dumped on their heads. But if Israel fails as God's chosen people, they will. So here we have in Joshua the dynamic established that requires nothing less than for the Lord to come himself to solve the insolvable dilemma that man has caused and cannot cure. But also one by which God will accept no compromise. Now continuing with that same thought. When backing up to verse 15, we find one of the more important words that really amounts almost a self-contained concept in this chapter. And that word is choose. Choose inherently implies free will. Choosing is only possible when there's a clear distinction between two or more possibilities. And the liberty is also available to make that choice. The choice presented to Israel was to choose the God of Israel or to choose other gods. Now, while that question seems one somewhat benign, in fact, it is the Chinese fingers of all questions that will ever be put before Israel or any of us for that matter. You know what Chinese fingers are, right? It's that simple little device in which you easily insert your fingers, one finger from each hand. Right? But a problem comes when you try to extract your fingers from this web tube. When you try to take your fingers out, it grabs hold of you and it won't let you. The harder you pull, the tighter the Chinese fingers grip and no amount of human strength or thrashing about releases you. You're trapped. And in fact, I've actually watched people virtually panic. I'm serious. Panic when they realize their predicament. Now, the moral of this is one that the typical Christian is sometimes startled to hear. To choose to serve the Lord is dangerous. And the consequences are serious. To choose to serve Jehovah means you just stuck your fingers into the infinitely powerful Chinese fingers of the God of the universe. Once you get in, getting out is not only difficult, but it will almost certainly mean your destruction in order for you to succeed. This is what was behind Joshua's question. And Israel just didn't get it. So they answered in a childlike ignorance, having little idea what this choice that they had made before God, oh, of course we'll serve him. Right? They didn't understand what this meant and what the repercussions of that choice either way were going to be. There is yet another mighty principle that is interwoven throughout this marvelous theological essay that is Joshua 24. It is that as little chance as we have 
of succeeding, God's believers are to constantly strive to emulate God in every way. God is merciful, thus we're to show mercy. God is loving, thus we're to show love. God is patient, faithful, slow to anger. Therefore, we should demonstrate those same attributes. The Lord has established his justice. Therefore, we're to establish his justice on earth. God chose Israel from his free will to be his people. So Israel is free to choose Jehovah or not from their free will to be their God. Yeshua chose to give his life for ours from his own free will. Now we are free to choose to give our lives to him or not from our own free will. But here's the thing. Everything changes when we're confronted with that choice. When Joshua challenged Israel with that question, Israel was in the midst of renewing their, co- their commitment to the covenant of Moses. That's what was going on at this very moment. This question was at the heart of that renewal process that was happening in Shechem. When we finally understand that there is a choice and we choose not to give our lives to him, then the only life we'll ever have is this oh-so-short physical, earthly one followed by a long period of torment and regret and then judgment. But when we choose to give our lives to him, then we'll live as he lives eternally in paradise. Now, even by our acceptance of God's Son, we cannot so easily escape from the problem of the Chinese fingers any more than Israel here at Shechem. You see, the issue is that those who have never known God are generally permitted by His will to have as good a life as they can make on their own. The main exception to that being those who might come against God's people and then all bets are off. Those who we call pagans have never experienced the Lord. They've never experienced His blessings. They've never laid down in His rest or been showered in His shalom. They've not known Him. So they have not been initiated into the kingdom of God nor are they familiar with the word of God, his laws, his commands, or the need for a Messiah. Of these people, practically nothing is expected by the Lord. In fact, a number of passages in both the Old and New Testaments explain that it's perfectly natural for pagans to worship the sun and the moon and the stars as their gods because the Father put those objects in the sky for just such a purpose. But, those who know God, know His laws and commands, are experiencing His love and grace. In Joshua's era, those Israelites who watched the Lord part the Red Sea rain food from the sky and burst forth water from boulders to sustain them. 
Then cross a damned up Jordan and marvel as the Father destroyed vast enemy armies ahead of them and finally give them rest in their own land. These people who the Lord redeemed and by definition knew him agreed that they had obligations to him. And their, their obligations all centered around serving him because that's, that's precisely what they were set apart to do. And that, dear friends, is what all believers in Yeshua, our Messiah, Jesus Christ, were chosen by him to do. Serve him. You, me, Gentiles, Jews, all disciples of Yeshua were elected with a purpose to serve the Lord with unwavering devotion and 100% perfection. Now, naturally, we'll never achieve that on this side of heaven. Nonetheless, that's what we're to strive for until our lungs suck in that last breath of air. God gave Israel the Torah in order to know what perfect service looked like. How else are they or we to know? And then he gave them a sacrificial system so that they could be forgiven when they inevitably failed. But with each failure, a new sacrifice was needed. With every failure, their iniquities piled up and were passed on to the next generation to bear. With every careless act and imperfection and divided devotion, another innocent animal lost its life. With Yeshua came the last sacrifice needed. The perfect one with perfect devotion. With Yeshua, every past failure could be forgiven and every future failure atoned for in advance. The cosmic problem set before Israel in this chapter of Joshua was finally solved 1,300 years after the problem was posed. We don't stop failing in our service to God just because we're saved. But we're sure supposed to try. Yeah, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. However, it's not physical rest that was promised us, but spiritual and eternal. Yeah, we can get disappointed in the failures of ourselves and of others who are Christian leaders, our messianic friends, our believing families. You know, tears and bitterness are normal in these earthly shells. But we can know with joy that this will all last only a little while. And then we will experience eternal shalom. Peace and well-being in God's very presence. Now, as wonderful as all this is, what happens to those who have been redeemed and have known God but inexplicably choose by their own free will to serve another master instead of Jehovah. Does the Lord wink and nod and look the other way? Does Israel as God's people get the equivalent of a short time out in their rooms for breaking faith with the Lord? 
Verse 20 answers that awful question for us. It says this. If you abandon Adonai and serve foreign gods, he will turn. Doing you harm. Destroying you. After he has done you good. Can it be any more plain? I know that some of you who are listening believe that this situation and God principle no longer exists. And that all a follower of God can ever expect from him now is goodness and mercy no matter what our choices are. And indeed, for so long as you are his, safely gripped within those heavenly Chinese fingers at your own choice, I have no doubt that that's the case. But free will and choice did not end for God's people after their redemption from Egypt did it. Nor after decades and decades of experiencing the Lord firsthand in the wilderness and then in Canaan did their free will end. I see no evidence that it's any different in our current era. And we are cautioned about this over and over again in the New Testament by Jesus and his apostles. Those who have known God and then turn around and renounce him, those who determine to extract themselves from his kingdom, must be, without doubt, the most miserable people on this earth. And this is because the God of Israel says, I'm not giving you up without a fight. And this fight's going to be a lot of pain for you. He's going to pursue you. He will discipline and chastise you if you think to change your loyalties to another master because you're so valuable to him. He's not jealous of other gods. He's jealous of you. He will never allow another human being or any creature or any spirit being to take you from his hand. But according to Joshua 24 and according to the parable of the seeds in Luke 8, by your own free will, you can choose the way of destruction after you've chosen the way of goodness for a while. How could any rational person make such a crazy choice? We could ask. Well, how could any Israelite who personally witnessed God's spectacular and visible miracles choose to serve one of those dumb little wooden idols? But this was no rhetorical question the Lord asked of Israel through Joshua when he wanted to know whom they served. Thousands of Israelites were at that very moment secretly harboring Canaanite gods, Canaanite idols in their homes and mystery Babylon gods and goddesses in their hearts. And in a few short years, thousands more were going to openly devote themselves to El, Asherah, Baal, Astarte. And we are going to begin to read about that shockingly rapid decline of Israel into rampant idolatry 
in the book of Judges. That's what it's all about. Let's read a little bit more of Joshua. Joshua 21 through 28. But the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve Adonai. And Joshua said to the people, Then you are witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen Adonai to serve him. And they answered, We are witnesses. Now Joshua urged, Put away those foreign gods you have among you. Turn your hearts to Adonai, the God of Israel. And the people answered Joshua, We will serve Adonai our God. We'll pay attention to what he says. So Joshua made a covenant covenant with the people that day, laying down for them laws and rulings there in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the Torah of God. Then he took a big stone and he set it up there under the oak next to the sanctuary of Adonai. And Joshua said to all the people, See, this stone will be a witness against us because it has heard all the words of Adonai, which he said to us. Therefore, it will be a witness against you in case you deny your God. Then Joshua sent the people away, every man, to his inheritance. After Joshua explains that if any that if, that if Israel serves any foreign gods, thereby breaking faith with the Lord, there will be severe penalties, the worst of which is the reversal of their salvation history. These penalties will be placed upon them by God and he will do them harm and he will destroy them. But the people respond even more firmly that they will not forsake Yahweh and serve foreign gods. What is troubling is what they didn't say. They did not say they would forsake foreign gods. They did not agree to bury, so to speak, their idols and to be rid of them. Rather, they only agreed, read those words again, not to abandon the Lord God in favor of other gods. In their minds... This means that they could have other gods so long as they continue to also worship Jehovah. And here's the problem that Israel has faced for the entire term of its existence. And here's the problem for which they have suffered at God's hand greatly. And fellow believers, I'm telling you, this is what we all suffer from as well. And verse 22 says something that seems innocuous to most moderns, but it has had very significant meaning, meaning to those ancients. Joshua now accepts Israel's answer, that it will serve God, after he had earlier rejected that same answer. But then he adds a warning. He says to them, you are witnesses against yourselves. Now, I've taught in earlier lessons that the nature of what a witness is and what a witness does is quite different in Western culture and law than it was in Hebrew culture and the law of Moses. For a witness, for us rather, a witness is just somebody who can testify to some aspect of a, of a case. Their only obligation is to be truthful. 
But a witness in Israel was also an accuser, a prosecutor, and if the offense required the death penalty, they had to be the ones who began the execution process. They were the first to throw a stone in a stoning, and then the remainder of the community would follow suit. So what Joshua is assuming is the role of a judge. And he's swearing in Israel as witnesses against themselves. Joshua's telling Israel, and they fully understood this, that as witnesses against themselves, if they should commit idolatry, which according to the law required the death penalty for conviction, then they will be their own accusers, they will be their own prosecutors, and they will execute themselves, so to speak. They will be the cause of their own destruction. To commit idolatry is to essentially commit suicide. Now they agree to these terms. And so in verse 25, Joshua commands them one last time, get rid of those idols that they've hidden in their tents and in their hearts and to serve only the God of Israel. Israel again asserts that she fully understands this vow and the seriousness of her obligation to Jehovah and what the consequences for failure might be. They pledge, they say, to Shema, the Lord. That means they pledge not only to hear what Jehovah has to say, but to obey it. Well, every new covenant or renewal of an existing covenant necessarily involves making a vow. Now that the people have publicly vowed to serve the Lord, forsaking other gods, and to listen to the Lord and obey whatever he tells them, the process is completed. Their promise to the Lord and his to them is in effect. And to memorialize that covenant renewal, Joshua erects a standing stone as a witness to all that happened. Now, the second half of verse 26 is significantly problematic in a number of ways. First is this matter of the standing stone placed underneath the big oak, likely the same place, by the way, that Jacob buried his clan's idols. And the Hebrew word for what, we're call a, what we call a standing stone in English um, in, in Hebrew is Eben Gadol Eben Gadol and it means a great stone it's essentially synonymous with another Hebrew word Masebot although there are minor differences these are both ceremonial stones used within a religious context they were used among the pagans to mark holy sites and at times to honor several of their gods. They were also symbolic of an appearance of a god or a goddess at that particular spot or they were to commemorate a highly historical act of a deity that took place there. Usually they were set up in a high place, a hill, a mound, all right, and wherever possible under a tree. The use of standing stones and trees was a central to, to worship practices among the pagans, as is Christians sitting in pews, listening to a pastor speak from a raised pulpit while standing, while he stands under a wooden cross. 
completely normal. Yet, was Joshua's and Israel's sincere effort to erect a stone monument to that special moment there at Shechem the proper thing to do? Obviously, they certainly thought it was. Joshua thought it was. Well, we're going to find all throughout Israel's history that this act of commemorating their commitment to God by means of a stone monument placed under a large tree was going to repeat itself. You know, you can put whipped cream on a pile of dirt, but it's still dirt. The tree had a meaning that Israel knew about. They just chose to ignore it and feel that since they didn't necessarily attach the same meaning as the pagans did, that it was fine to employ trees in their religious practices. Among the pagans, you see, the tree was a symbol for the wife of El. Her name was Asherah. Thus, groves of trees that were used in pagan shrines were also given the name in Hebrew of Asherah. So Asherah in the Bible is both the formal name of El's wife and the word used for the sacred grove of trees where the monuments were put. Point being, this wasn't lost on the Hebrews. They knew full well the meaning of employing a tree on a hill in a religious ceremony and who was being honored. Even if they didn't necessarily overtly intend to honor a pagan goddess, all who weren't Hebrews looked upon what they did and they sure took it that way. But have no doubt that the Israelites were also hedging their bets a little bit when they did this. Okay. By worshiping the Lord God using practices and methods that other gods enjoyed, you're killing two birds with one stone. And also not offending your pagan neighbors who you're all mixed in with. After all, there was always that chance that those paganite gods were still around. There's no need to aggravate them. The problem is they were violating both the letter and the spirit of the Torah when they did that. Leviticus 26.1 says this, You are not to make yourselves any idols. You're not to erect a carved statue or a standing stone or place any carved stone anywhere in your land in order to bow down to it. I'm Adonai, your God. Now let me repeat this verse I just read to you, adding in a couple of Hebrew words to replace their English translations to help you understand just how crystal clear and unequivocal this command of God is to avoid using stones as monuments to him. You're not to make yourselves any idols, erect a carved statue or a masabot, or place any eben, gadol, anywhere in your land in order to bow down to it. I am Jehovah your God. No masabot, no eben. Both terms commonly used to convey using a stone to mark a religious or holy site were employed in this well-known command so there could be no doubt. And the biblical writers who wrote in later times came down hard 
on this continuing practice of Israel using those religious standing stones placed under sacred trees. There is equally no doubt that Israel constantly used stones and trees in a misguided attempt to please God. They were used unthinkingly, often innocently, because their use was so traditional in Middle Eastern cultures. But it was wrong. It was wrong. And such innocently, uh, rather such seemingly innocent and sincere acts invariably led baby step by baby step to a more careless and set of serious trespasses against the Lord's commands until God justly punished the violators. Shock and surprise was often their first reaction when they felt God's wrath. Now I greatly fear that we believers today are such careless people and our frivolous attempts to supposedly honor Jehovah when we in fact are far more interested in making a personal statement or pleasing ourselves. We as did Israel still think we can take a forbidden pagan practice and on our own accord merely attach a different meaning to it and then offer it to God and expect him to be pleased with it. That's what Israel thought they could do. It's one thing for Jehovah to ordain a practice in the Torah that was similar to those used by the pagans who did not worship him and for him to attach a different and heavenly meaning to it. It's quite another to think that we have that same authority. Another problematic issue in verse 26 is where it says that the standing stone was placed under a tree and this was next to the sanctuary of Jehovah. Whoa. The obvious question is, did the tabernacle get moved from Shiloh to Shechem for a time? Or is more often believed, did the Ark of the Covenant get transported to Shechem from its resting place in Shiloh for this ceremony and then it was returned later? As difficult as either of those possible solutions is, there's yet another possibility that's probably even more troubling. It is known that in this same era, there was a pagan sanctuary to the god Baal. It was operated by the Canaanite residents of Shechem, and it was called Baal Berith, Covenant of Baal. It is just possible that the Israelites took over that sanctuary and converted it to a sanctuary to Jehovah. For an enemy, in this case Israel, to capture a sanctuary to a certain god that belonged to their opponents and then rededicate that sanctuary to a different god, one of their gods, that was completely common understood as normal operating procedures in that day. That may well be what happened here. Naturally, it would seem to have been a wrong thing, another wrong thing for Joshua and Israel to do, but just like the trees and the standing stones, they didn't seem to see it that way. Now, we're going to find this exact thing happening during the time of the Maccabees. 
when the temple of God in Jerusalem was captured by Syria. And then it was converted to a sanctuary to Zeus. When Israel recaptured it, in an event, by the way, that's memorialized by what holiday? Hanukkah. That's right. They recaptured it, took it back from Syria, and then re-rededicated it back to the God of Israel, back to Yahweh. Now, I just spent some time in Spain and visited some of the great cities of the Spanish Southlands. And there were some magnificent cathedrals at the center of each of these cities. But in a couple of cases of these enormous grand cathedrals, they were really nothing more than converted mosques. Or palaces of the Muslim rulers who had conquered most of Spain in the 7th century AD and controlled it for well over 200 years. When Christians retook Spain, or more specifically it was the Catholic Church then who was representing Christianity, then rather than tear down these magnificent houses of worship and palaces of the Muslims, the church simply took them as is and rededicated them to the Christian God. In England today, it is common for Muslims to purchase long-defunct churches and rededicate them to Allah as mosques. We have exactly the same thing going on in the U.S. as we speak. So this concept of converting a sanctuary of worship dedicated to one God into a place of worship to a different God was not only usual thousands of years ago, it remains so to this day even in the West. And since it is unthinkable to me that Joshua would have set the Ark of the Covenant in front of a huge crowd of Israelite leaders there at Shechem, which would have meant instant death, to all who looked upon it, I suspect that the ark was either brought to the former sanctuary of Baal and put behind a curtain there in a more or less proper manner or it wasn't brought at all and it remains in Shiloh at the tabernacle. Therefore, what would have happened is that the Baal Berit sanctuary at Shechem was simply rededicated to the name of Jehovah and thereby called the sanctuary of Jehovah And thus is the reason that we see this strange little statement at the end of verse 26. While I think that is the most likely possibility, I readily admit I can't prove it. But I assure you that I'm hardly alone in thinking that this is the most likely scenario. Let's read the last few verses of this chapter and close out the book of Joshua. We're going to read verses 29 to the end. After this, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Adonai, died. He was 110 years old. They buried him on his property in Timnath-Serach, which is in the hills of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Israel served Adonai through Joshua's lifetime and throughout the lifetime of the leaders who outlived Joshua and had known all the deeds that Adonai had done on behalf of Israel. The bones of Yosef, Joseph, which the people of Israel had brought up from Egypt, they buried in Shechem, in the parcel of ground where Yaakov, Jacob, had brought from the sons, had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver, and they became a possession for the descendants of Joseph. Finally, 
Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died. And they buried him on the hill belonging to Pincus, his son, which had been given to him in the hills of Ephraim. Well, Joshua dies at 110 years of age. Do not at all think, by the way, that this means precisely 110 years, nor that he died on his 110th birthday. Okay. He might have been a few months shy of 110 or even a few months older. 110 is a significant number because down in Egypt, 110 was seen among the Egyptians as the symbolic age of having lived in an extraordinary lifespan. However, we saw that Moses died at what age? 120. That's the number of years that God says in Torah is man's symbolic age of blessed and fullest lifespan. The difference between the two in lifespans is also, also makes it clear that Joshua had not attained Moses' status in God's eyes, though he was just a notch below. We also find a very significant honor bestowed upon Joshua at his death that had not been given to him during his life. He was called the servant of Jehovah. This was a title that had belonged supremely to Moses, and it's a very rare one. When Joshua was Moses' assistant, and when he finally took over the leadership role of Israel upon Moses' death, Joshua was given the title of servant of Moses only as an epitaph. Now, the title servant of Jehovah transferred to Joshua. Well, the influence of Joshua upon Israel was enormous. His example of leadership is unmatched in the Old Testament. In reality, the later story of King Solomon is the story of an anti-Joshua, if you would. An example of the worst kind of leadership. Joshua poured his life out into his people and into making and preparing the next generation of Israel's leaders. The passage in verse 31 makes it clear that immediately following his death, Israel was well governed by those that he had mentored. And as a result, Israel served the Lord in a manner that seems to have pleased him. Although we now get a quick note that the remains of Joseph that had been brought with them on their exodus from Egypt, those remains were buried at Shechem. This is really an anachronistic statement. Right? This is a statement that makes it appear that Joseph was only buried now at the same time that Joshua died. Rather, his internment with his ancestors would have been one of the very first acts of the leaders of Israel when they arrived in the Promised Land. It's only that the editor of Joshua must have noticed that to this point, this wonderfully important figure of Israel's salvation history has not had the announcement of his proper burial posted yet. So he chose this spot to mention it. Now, after Joshua died, the current high priest, Eleazar, passed away. And we don't know exactly how long after Joshua, Eleazar died. And Pincus was now the new high priest of Israel. Now, it's appropriate for us to close the book of this golden era of conquest and obedience of God's people on this note. Because now we have 
both the secular and the religious leaders of the conquest era, era put into their graves. Okay. The next historical era of Israel is, unfortunately, not so glorious as the one that's just ended with this book. It's called the era of the judges, or Shoftim. Right. And there was no Joshua-like figure to guide Israel. The priesthood was supposed to function in that matter, at least to a degree. And each tribal leader was to emulate Joshua. But they didn't. Rather, each did what was best in their own eyes. And Israel was going to pay a terrible price for it. We're going to begin the book of Judges next time.